Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And today, I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and the programming and marketing coordinator here at Hollywood Suite, Lacey Novinka. New Hollywood is defined by the visionary director, and we've talked about a number of them on the show for the last four seasons. From Spielberg to Coppola to Bogdanovich, these are names that are repeated over and over in discussions about film history. Lena Wertmuller and Stephanie Rothman may not be household names for most people, but their work was as distinctive and provocative as any of the other directors I mentioned above. We're going to look at Wertmuller's Love and Anarchy and Rothman's group marriage today. But before we do, let's talk about early 70s Hollywood and some of the women filmmakers who were working in a system where the double standard of laissez-faire filmmaking in a post-Easy Rider world was real. Now, Lacey, I know there is no bigger topic you would rather tackle, and that's why you're here today. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, thank you, Becky, for that setup. Um, just, just to set the record straight, I, I love film. I love the early 70s, and I love pointing out hypocrisy. So I was born ready. <laughs> I mean, we knew that about you, but the, the, the <laughs> listeners don't. So this is good that you're making that very clear. Uh, I am just, my research has gotten me very fired up. Um, I grew up like idolizing the new Hollywood class. Um, it's so easy to mythologize them because they were like, this historic moment of young, ambitious filmmakers. And it took me a while to realize that they were only white men, you know? Directors yeah. that were women and people of color were just not afforded the opportunity to enter into this class, really. My big one-two punch was the first time I saw uh, Jumping Jack Flash. And it was like, it, it features a Black woman in an action role, and it is directed by Penny Marshall. And that was like, those two things can exist? But like, it's not until yeah. like the mid-80s, right? Like if we're talking yeah, about exactly. the 70s, it's a totally different ballgame. Like exactly. you could argue um, Elaine May is included in there with a new yeah. in 1971, yeah. but she had to fight tooth and nail uh, to not get that film taken away from her in post-production. And ultimately she did, and she wanted her credit removed from it entirely. So that just kind of goes to show these male studio executives did not feel comfortable with a woman having money and power behind her artistic vision. Alicia, you're about to do a series on uh, Joan Micklin Silver, and that's like a whole other thing right there, right? Joan Micklin Silver, you know, as a screenwriter working with Barbara Loden, working with other women, mostly in the educational sphere, when she realized she wanted to be a director, she approached a very famous but unnamed producer. I always loved trying to hypothesize who it was, uh, you know, and asked him how how to get into that role as a director. Uh, and he said that women are one more problem that we do not need because um, it's hard yeah. enough to make films. And so that launched an incredible career in independent filmmaking. But she's one of she's one of a kind. I mean, there there's very few. Um, they exist. And I can honestly say I went through two master's degrees in film without studying <laughs> Elaine May, Joan Micklin Silver, Dorothy Arzner, um, Barbara Loden. It's interesting to then like approach being a professional in the film industry and have to find these names for yourself because academia fails you. Most film programming fails you. Um, archives fail you because there's a huge issue with preserving the works of women directors and directors of color. It's always going to be those white dudes who get the most studio money behind them to do the restorations and re-release The Godfather 8 million different times, whereas it's only in the last like five years that we've even seen some of the Arseners restored or Joan Micklin Silver restored and available or even, I mean, frankly, something like The Heartbreak Kid by Elaine May at this point is a lost film. Really? You can't show it. You can't 
find a print of it. It seems to be not on Paramount's roster whatsoever for restoration. I just got an email today saying that the one print that I found in Sweden to bring to TIFF is unavailable moving forward. So it means anywhere internationally, except for that one one area in Sweden, if you want to show the Heartbreak Kid, you can't. That is heartbreaking to me. And just, I can't. I love that movie so much that that makes me so sad. But that You saw the last screening that probably did. And it was one of the best moments of my life. It made me so happy. Uh, Lacey, obviously you have a passion for this. So what was your aha moment? Like what movie that you saw made you go, I need to know more about what women were doing at that time in this specific, uh, specific era? Oh, that was 100%. Um, I discovered it via Hollywood Sweep. Um, <laughs> Barbara Loden's Wanda um, oh, just <laughs> completely blew the doors off of everything I knew about what a film could be, um, what women can do with film in general, what how women can even portray themselves. Um, like, it's kind of crazy to go through your entire adolescence not realizing that you're only really seeing women portrayed in film through the eyes of a, a man, mostly. I mean, when I reflect back on all of my favorite movies from childhood, I'm a Tarantino fanboy. That's how I got into film. So okay. it's okay. This is a it's safe okay. space. Yes. Um, <laughs> it just I've I I feel like my my film Odyssey. I have traveled quite far on this journey and I'm really happy that it has led me to uh, this specific podcast episode because I didn't realize how lacking I was in my film knowledge of women directors in general but at this point when you thought the industry was being broken wide open and it turns out it wasn't. You're not lacking though that's I, I understand where you're coming from but that's false Every mechanism around you is lacking. Mm -hmm. And there is this predestined sort of timeline and history that you can go through the motions and never experience women as directors. And Mm -hmm. I will say right now, you are significantly younger than me. And I've always assumed when I'm teaching people in their early 20s that the world is different for them. Um, And I'm realizing for you, it's not (laughs) that much better. However, I mean, I will point to something like Hollywood Suite, even broadcasting a film like Wanda, that is a bold act, Um, a bold act that probably wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we are in a place that's very different, yet it's there's a lag. There's a real lag in academia. There's a real lag in pop culture. There's a real lag in, you know, these films aren't on Netflix, obviously. (laughs) You're going to have to find the Criterion Collection. You're going to have to find Hollywood Suite in order um, to discover these films. Even at a fundamental level, we are teaching people in the industry that these people do not exist when they do. And that's one of the reasons I love doing this show so much is it's like, love Lena Vertmuller. I have not revisited Love and Anarchy in a very long time, but I also forgot how prolific Lena Vertmuller was. And it is a very unusual thing to see a, a woman do that. And she's... She's we're get, we'll get into her, but like she's so much more of a boys club member than a lot of the women who are working in independent film in Hollywood. That she was the boys club member in Italy and in Europe. It's a very different way of working, which is very interesting to me. That's the mm. only way that her career is possible, though, and that's true of Dorothy Arzner too. Like Dorothy Arzner was queer, but any sort of publicity image of Dorothy Arzner in the nineteen thirties, early forties, she's wearing men's clothing. Um, she really had to butch it up in order to be taken seriously as just one of the boys, which is really complex and hard for me to wrap my head around with that sort of notion of femininity, queer identity, and being in a position of power. But I think uh, Vert Mueller kind of did the same thing, but because she's apprenticing under Fellini, um, and there's a lot of uh, masculinity going on, <laughs> like in Fellini's <laughs> films and machismo, let's say. That's like well, the definition. Well, in an eight and a half specifically, which is what she worked on. Like that movie is just like a yeah. cavalcade of broad, if you will. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of female characters in that film, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're fully rounded or anything yeah. less than kind of a trope. I love eight and a half. I'm not bashing eight and a half. It's just it's there, it was a time and a place. And she comes out of that in a very different way than someone like Joan Micklin-Silver, Elaine May, Barbara Loden, 
you know, Claudia Veal, all of those. Well, let's get into our first movie. Uh, So for much of the late 60s, early 70s, Hollywood grappled with what to make of the sexual revolution and the new and changing attitudes towards not only sex, but the relationship of marriage in general. Now, 1969 saw the release of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, a sex comedy that depicted two couples exploring open relationships and polyamory. It not only was nominated for four Academy Awards, but it was the fifth highest grossing movie of the year. When you read articles about that movie, it's often discussed how it's progressive, even by today's standards. When I went into 1973's group marriage, I expected something similar to Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, but I was delighted to find a movie equally thought-provoking, not actually about marriage, and however, it still had this distinctive 70s point of view a few years out from the summer of love. I don't know if it's good. I don't know (laughs) if I can say that about it. But I can say it is fascinating. And if this sounds like it's even something remotely for you, it probably is. Lacey, do you feel the same way about this one? I do. This was a very nice, fun, kind of laid back watch for me, especially after just coming off Love and Anarchy. I really kind of (laughs) settled back into like this... um, This cozy, breezy, early 70s California where everyone is the most beautiful person you've ever seen. Where you also can walk around nude all day because the weather is permissive. (laughs) It's nice. I mean, shoes were um, um, optional. Oh, yes. It's a fun movie. Like, it's super fun. Do you want to give people just like a quick plot line of this one, even though there's not really a plot? Yes. Um, I would call it maybe like a hangout movie, you know, one of those yes, like easy totally. laid back, maybe a link later, maybe a licorice pizza kind of. It's just we're just we're getting to know these people We're we're following their their day ins and day outs. Um, so we meet a couple that are in love. They've been living together for quite some time. Their relationship seems fairly strong um, until a man comes into their home. And kind of all of the dynamics are thrown up into the air. Um, His girlfriend is brought into the mix. And her inclusion kind of works perfectly with this uh, mechanism that they've kind of built for for themselves. And then another man comes along. And honestly, I was thinking we were only going with four. So once we eventually (laughs) got to six people, I was just kind of uh, dumbstruck. But... Well, you had to one up Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice, right? You got to add another couple in there, possibly another. You just got to keep going. It was like when Alien went from Aliens. Like, I could see that pitch (laughs) where it's like, well, we we know Alien was successful, but what if we have more? Like, I think that's what they did for Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Like, what if we add two more? Joan and Dan. And we make three of <laughs> yes, and if we make three of them Playboy playmates, you know, there's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with cool. Diane Cannon, very throw, attractive woman. Throw but Claudia Jennings in there, and we're good. Yeah. I I like to think of this movie as group marriage, polyamory, the movie, or communal living. You know, I feel yeah. like this this was sort of just like a very long ad selling me on the perks of potential communal living um and you know like hippie communes were such a vibe in the 70s and such a phenomenon when this film was made we really especially in california mm-hmm. and along the west coast you really had these communes coming up where you're going to do communal living there was definitely wife swapping there was co-parenting like this <laughs> is this is the height of that sort of movement that then very much dies with the reagan era this is also a movie that i think if it was made by a man would be grosser like there's still a lot of like lingering uh, on breasts and you're getting your nudity etc um but there's is uh stephanie rothman describes herself as a director and i love this so much as a writer director as a smuggler of ideas and she is not incorrect because that is exactly what's happening here it's what happens in the velvet vampire that's it's these really intricate complex ideas surrounded by ta and violence like it's (laughs) really really clever uh alicia do you want to get a little bit into stephanie rothman and kind of her journey? Yeah, I can. Um, She comes from a sociology background. So she went to university, I believe Berkeley, could be wrong. It's definitely somewhere in California um, for sociology and then kind of ends up in the 1960s in under the guise of Roger Corman, who was teaching. And she wins the first, she's the first woman to win this apprenticeship to become a director. 
And because of her academic background in sociology and, you know, studying under Corman, he ends up hiring her as his first female director. Um, he has a production company at this point called New World Pictures. And he just seeded from AIP, hadn't he? Like at this, like we're talking yeah. like maybe a, is 69 he leaves, doesn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 69, yeah. 70. This is 71. Oh, I'm sorry, this is 73. Uh, Velvet Vampire 71, which she produced for him. There were no other women directors working under Corman. There was certainly no women even on the crew. So she's really in a class of her own. And he gives her a lot of trust and a lot of leeway. Um, And she makes things like student nurses. Uh, And this film was pretty big. This is kind of in the middle part of her career with Corman. Okay, so just for the sake of clarity, this actually isn't a Roger Corman movie. This was a completely separate movie company that was founded in 1971 called Dimension Pictures, not to be mistaken for Dimension Films, which would later go ahead and produce things like Scream. Dimension Pictures was founded by Lawrence Woolner, who was an exhibitor who had made a bunch of movies with Roger Corman, and he hired Stephanie Rothman and her husband, Charles S. Swartz, to run the filmmaking division. They were there until 1975 when they both quit filmmaking altogether, uh, but the company would run until 1981, very similar to New World Pictures. They were making exploitation movies, horror movies, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and if you think about Corman at this point, you know, he's working with Jonathan Demme. He's working with Jack Nicholson. He's working with James Cameron. He's working with, you know, all of these men, these white men that would go on to become the biggest directors working in the 1980s. And Stephanie Rothman as a name is is very much left behind, even though the films that she directed for Corman are, do infinitely better at the box office than, say, what Jonathan Demme is doing. Um, I actually love Demme's Corman films, but they, they just don't have the same impact as the Rothmans that come before it. Uh, and I mean, that's just exactly what Lacey was talking about at the beginning of this episode is it's it's just it's purposeful. The people writing histories are going to be men. Film critics are men at this point, with a few exceptions. And so they're going to willfully leave out Stephanie Rothman. Her career kind of ends in the late 70s. Um, she and her husband tried to get a few projects off the ground and, you know, the, no one would employ a woman. Um, the kind of sort of experimental freedom that she had with Roger Corman couldn't be replicated in a Hollywood studio and definitely couldn't be replicated in other independent kind of filmmaking ateliers. And so her career ends. And it's 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 a shame. also the fact that she was. Yeah, it is. And it's also the fact that she was known specifically for exploitation. And they were like, well, then she can't handle something more serious. She can't handle a comedy. She couldn't do a studio picture. She was boxed into expo- exploitation films to yeah, begin she didn't want with. That. Yeah, no. so and that's what they—that's what she talks about—is it's the only way she could make movies, and it's what stopped her from continuing to make movies in the end. So it's this incredible, frustrating double standard. Well, if you look at like the films of Doris Wishman, and I'm not sure if either of you are familiar with Doris Wishman, but uh, Lacey, you're gonna have a great time. Thank <laughs> you. Weekend for you. Um, you know, that's a situation where these are similar films that she's making in the '60s, but she ends up going more pornographic, right? Mm-hmm. And I think. Stephanie knew she had to have tits and ass and she does it really, really well. They're very elegant in all of her films and balanced and nuanced. But she wasn't going to go into a further kind of hardcore or even like softcore pornographic mode for her filmmaking. And that's it's funny, like she's it's almost like she's not pornographic enough, but then she's too pornographic in other ways. (laughs) Well, one of the things Stephanie Rothman talks about is for the R rating, you could have nudity, but you can't have sex. Yeah. Which for me is like, what a weird censorship, like snafu of, yeah, you can have fully naked women, you can have partially naked men, but you can't have them interacting with each other in a sexual yeah. way. And now we're the other way around. Like now the kind of, you know, the prudes of censorship in Canada and the US for film is you can have sex, you can have sexual violence, but if you see any female nudity, like a nipple or a vagina, then it's an automatic NC-17. Not a nipple, but certainly full frontal would be well. If, if you ask Instagram, nipples are pornographic, right? So yeah. there's so there's <laughs> yeah. that. Um, there's a great quote of hers. It's interviewed from 1973, where she says, "I am very tired of the whole tradition in Western art in which women are always presented nude and men aren't. I'm not going to dress women and undress men. That would be a form of tortured vengeance. But I certainly am going to undress men, and the result is probably a more healthy environment because one group of people presenting another in a vulnerable, weaker, more servile position." is always distorted. Yeah, I've seen a lot of penis um, in yeah. media lately. 
Like just tune into anything on Netflix. Um, or are you watching HBO. Euphoria right now? They are making a meal yeah. out of that. I mean, that's a great example. <laughs> what was I watching recently? Where my uh, my boyfriend turned to me and he's like, "Have you ever seen so many penises in a short amount of time?" And it wasn't even like we were watching something explicit. And I realized that that is true. Like it's it's kind of unbelievable. Um, so I feel like in some ways Stephanie Rothman proved her theory and is got it right. Like we're just we just had to experience it forty to fifty years later. Yeah, we had to keep up. There's so many ideas in this that we're still grappling with that I'm just like I don't. It's so interesting. So like there was an incident a while ago. Um, I don't even know if it was in Toronto. It might have been in New York. But there was a couple practicing BDSM on the subway, and it's one of those things where it's like. That's not progressive. That is actually violating other people's rights, and that's not actually safe play. So Mm -hmm. this is a story that is interesting because this is the agreement and the communication is so open of what these people are agreeing to do together. And when they decide to invite other people in and other people are presenting, hey, and uh, it's played for laughs. It's like, I am a 10-year-old girl who is extremely precocious. I am a man with a sheep, (laughs) you know, like there's there's that. You want to see my credits? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's yeah, pretty it's funny. Very, but I'm just here to watch, right? But it's a it's having that conversation about you can have the relationship you want, but you have to have the rules and boundaries around that that work for not just your group, but all the people around it. And that's how consent works. And so you don't really think about it because you're busy laughing at the guy with the sheep and like the full little Bo Peep uh, crook and everything. But it's like, what a complex idea to present in that way that like these are the boundaries they've set and these other people are violating those boundaries. And th- so therefore they're not allowed to be part of the group that is open in in their in their way they've got it wrong anyway it's supposed to say wanted one female they left out the female part well don't worry about it i go both ways you know acdc yeah i'm sorry pal but we're all straight here well that's okay with me i'm trying to get straight fine i'll help you get straight but i'll show you the straightest way out of here this movie, I feel like it's only just hitting me now how progressive <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. And, me too. No, I agree with you. I don't think I realized that while watching it. Towards the end of the film, when so we have like our six core members, and one of the women decides to break it off. She she says she can't be tied down. She needs to be free. Um, they're like on a pier or something. It's mm-hmm. sunset, and it, as she's like hugging everyone individually, I realized that. I felt very sad that like these six people who I'd grown to like really enjoy their little cohabitation, what they were doing. I was sad that they couldn't make it work. And Mm -hmm. I just, I would have never uh, expected to get that feeling out of something that was kind of marketed as an exploitation movie. Yeah. Smut. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It just, I, I never felt like this movie went somewhere that, that made me uncomfortable. It actually, it really kind of like cared about its characters. It's also not a movie without danger, however, because when they come out publicly, mm-hmm. God knows why, on the news, their their home is assaulted by Molotov cocktails. Like they mm-hmm. are genuinely endangered for a brief period of time of people who don't who, who don't understand what they're doing. And then the cocktail that's the weirdest to me is like then you throw in the concept of a gay couple and a gay marriage, which is just as um, taboo or a same sex marriage. My apologies, which is just as taboo as the this idea of polyamory. It's really a fascinating group of ideas. But again, audiences who were watching this at a drive in. Do, do you? Th- I mean, obviously, they probably didn't get some of the bigger stuff. Do you? But do you think they were somewhat indoctrinated by some of it? God, I hope so. I hope that Rodney and Randy really got to everyone's hearts. I know they got to mine, even though I think they were dressed terribly. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I have no idea. Maybe. I hope that there were like you know dates that went to go see this at the drive-in, and then like one of the couple, one of the people in the couple was like, you know what, this monogamy thing. She's right. It doesn't work. Let's uh, let's shake things up a bit. But it's hard to say how this was really. I think this would have been viewed as a porn, <laughs> like as 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 like, you know, an exploitation film. It's how it was advertised. It's all over the marketing materials. So something I find really interesting about Stephanie Rothman is that originally she didn't really know she was making exploitation films. Um, this seemed to be something that was after the fact, which I think is is so interesting. And it comes back to her, what she's doing and what you said, Becky, about her being a smuggler idea of ideas. Um, she's kind of turning the genre from the inside out, which I think you can see 
on display in this film as well. It's, so it's something we actually talked about. <laughs> it's something we actually talked about in Humanoids of the Deep, um, or sorry, Humanoids from the Deep with uh, Barbara Peters, where the movie was taken away from Barbara Peters. And it's pretty common. If, if you're not able to hit the buttons he needed you to hit, um, he would take the film away from you. And that's just kind of how that how that worked for him but it seems like she was able to hit the buttons every single time and um i think the difference is she was mostly doing um eye candy stuff so like even beyond atlantis uh terminal island all of that is very much tna sort of movies she's not doing a lot of the violent stuff um and i think maybe that's just more palatable for her in that way what do you guys think I don't know if palatable is the right word i don't know lacy can you can you cover me here i'm not sure because Ah, oh, I can't put my finger on it. Like she makes really solid films that are disguised as smut. And I think that that is true of a lot of women filmmakers. It's always disguised and marketed as something that it's not. And then you're tricked into watching it. And it's always so much greater than how it was described. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, like about exploitation films, something in my research that kind of smacked me in the face is that these films... Uh, they don't have stars in them. So they are mark they live and die by being marketed on the promise of violence and nudity. Uh, so you you hear about group marriage, you you see the poster, you see the tagline, you immediately know what to expect. And just I feel like Stephanie Rothman did a really good job of towing the line where she is catering to that male fantasy that the exploitation film is built out of, but she is still provoking thoughts from it and telling a story and doing her best to uh, build these fleshed out characters and just like have fun. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, exploitation producers and the people behind the marketing campaigns for these films, they never considered the fact that women wanted to see them as well. It was almost like they thought the only audience were men, and that's that's false. And we, we see this later on with something like Return of the Living Dead, where there's a lot of female nudity. And, you know, there, Dan O'Bannon would have put male nudity in had he known how fabulously um, appreciated that, that film would have been by women. And so I think that that's true here. And that's where Rothman is so fantastic with group marriage is she's giving something to all audiences. It's not gendered. She does it in this balanced way where there's tawdriness for both, for all sexes, for all walks of life, for all, I mean, mostly white people, um, for, you know, for certainly for um, a realm of sexuality as well. And she's acknowledging that as early as 73 in a way that other exploitation filmmakers were not. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, something like Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill, Kill appeals to everyone. It, it just, that's what makes that film and that series and Tura Satana so amazing is that it doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, or something else. Like it does, it just doesn't. Like you love it. And I think Rothman brings that to Corman in a way that other Cormanites didn't. It's also relatable moments as well. One of my favorite moments in this film is the um, the scene where all four of them go to bed for the first time and one of them simultaneously and one of them um, isn't comfortable yet with the idea of her previous solo monogamous partner sleeping with another woman in the same bed next to her <laughs> and uh, keeps like turning on the TV and distracting them. And it is uh, it's 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 really funny and charming while still dealing with the genuine emotional core of, yeah, there's going to be some weird residual feelings if this is the arrangement you have and you're you think you want it. You're still testing the waters. What are the actual boundaries? It's uh, it's a moment that's played for laughs, but it's there's also a really distinct core to it. Yeah. She's like eating popcorn in bed, like spilling it everywhere while they're trying to make out <laughs> watching Johnny Carson. They like pull out weed to like kind of get them all in the mood to, yeah. to get physical. And she like dumps the weed. She's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I guess we have to clean up all this. Weed. <laughs> they're very like, lucky that they have such a large like California king bed. And I guess that was really, as we've learned from Licorice Pizza, there was a real like bed revolution in the 1970s. And I feel like Licorice Pizza takes place in 73, which is the year that this film was made. And the one thing I would have liked to have seen in addition is a waterbed. Or something heart-shaped or, heart -shaped or round. I want a waterbed because I want four people in an orgy or even let's say six as it eventually becomes <laughs> to like 
spring, you know, like it springs a leak. That's the kind of, <laughs> I, I would have appreciated that. I'm just saying having, I have a lot of licorice pizza on my mind at all times. And so Fat Bernie's uh, waterbeds was, was something I was considering as a historical touch point. <laughs> all right. <laughs> at that note, let's go into our next film. Maybe it's not a smuggling of ideas, but perhaps it is a smack in the face of ideas, a revolution, if you will. It's Love and Anarchy. That's coming up after the break. To love Lena Vertmuller movies is to be someone who takes a perverse pleasure in being heartbroken. At least, that's how I feel about it. When any of her movies start, you will laugh, be disgusted and or horrified, and find yourself on the verge of tears, if not outright sobbing. In 1975, she'd be the first woman nominated for an Oscar in directing for the equal parts hilarious and horrifying Seven Beauties. In 1974, she would shake up the industry with Swept Away, and in 1973, we would get the biting and beautiful Love and Anarchy. Add in Seduction of Mimi in 72, and that is what I call a killer streak. We lost Vertmuller at the end of 2021. So today, we thought we'd take another look at the lady behind the white glasses masterpieces, Love and Anarchy, which accurately describes the feelings I have for Giancarlo Giannini. I am so into him. It's very conflicting. <laughs> Alicia, how do you feel about Love and Anarchy? There's just so much yelling in this film, and <laughs> I'm here for it. If that is a if that's something you don't like in general, if a lot of screaming, a lot of just, you know, talking over characters, just utter chaos. And don't watch Italian films in general. <laughs> this is true. Um, you know, obviously like all Italian films from this era, especially it's post-dubbed. Uh, it's really well done in terms of the post-dubbing. There's a lot of bad 70s Italian films. Or I shouldn't say they're bad Italian films. They're films that have very bad post-dubbing and it's like very distracting and this doesn't even in scenes where you have 25 characters wrestling each other in a brothel with bodies flailing everywhere <laughs> all of the dialogue is there um this film is yeah this is not the first Vert Mueller um obviously I would welcome listeners to go back to season two and check out our episode on seven beauties and so this wasn't my first Vert Mueller this is maybe like my fifth or sixth and it's interesting because it's in some ways one of the more difficult uh, and it has like the biggest ideas, though. And I was reading a lot about the idea of like, you know, just looking at the dialectic and socialism and you know, in opposition to fascism and Baudelaire coming in. And it's just it blew my mind. And yet at the same time, this has so much of a slapstick comedy basis to it. Uh, which I should probably talk about the plot. So we have um, this brothel in Rome where, you know, the lead prostitute, kind of one of the, you know, the, the lead girls uh, is played by Mary Angela Milato, who appears in most of Vert Mueller's films. Uh, she's known as the prostitute Salome. And she's kind of what we would consider, well, what, not we, but what Italian culture considers um, a donna crisi, which is this sort of rejection that occurred in the 1930s by certain women of, you know, maternalness and of the home. Um, she's, you know, rake thin. She's very fashionable. She has this Jean Harlow dyed haircut. And um, she, it's very clear that she's not going to be a homemaker at any time. She's a modern woman. Yeah. A big part of fascist Italy, though, and the propaganda of fascist Italy was that women need to come out of the workforce and they need to go home and they need to breed our workers. They need to breed our soldiers. They need to get back in the, in the homes. Yeah. So this rejection of it and the idea of having sex for pleasure or, or sex as a commodity as opposed to just for producing offspring would be like a complete spit in the face of what the fascist ideals would have been at the time. Right. Except not because wow. the fascist government was running these brothels and they were state sanctioned and they would come in and do inspections and these women had licenses to be sex workers granted by the government because they knew that they needed this service performed for their soldiers and for their men and obviously government officials are taking advantage of this so as much as they're like yeah send women out of the factories give them tax incentives to crap out a bunch of kids the flip side is, is these kinds of brothels were needed to make society function. Lacey, what do you think of that? <laughs> I'm speechless over here. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> I feel like Lena Vertmuller uh, like grabbed my heart and just like squeezed it, but also she grabbed my brain 
and she took me to school at the same time. But also she grabbed my soul and kind of just like shook it awake a bit. This is a woman that was expelled from no less than 15 Catholic schools in her upbringing. And I think you really see that in this film. Uh, And she loved comic books. That is something that I will never get over. Flash Gordon is like her favorite. Yeah, there's a lot of Flash Gordon in this. I don't want to follow that up with any (laughs) qualification because I don't know what I'm talking about, but I I see it in my mind. Um, There's some... So anyway, Salome is also an anarchist. She wants to avenge her former lover who um, attempted an assassination on Mussolini and was arrested and uh, beaten to death, was you know basically, quote unquote, disappeared. And so she um, is part of this kind of underground league of anarchists that are going to take down Mussolini. And she fakes that she has this cousin from the country who is played by Giancarlo Giannini, uh, Tunin. And Tunin is actually um, this anarchist, although he's not really, he's a country boy who saw his friend murdered and he wants to like take up the cause and he's going to kill Mussolini. And so she sleeps around with various officials to kind of get information on, you know, Mussolini's movement and where he's going to be. And they're they're going to assassinate him. Unfortunately, Another prostitute named Tripolina, played uh, by the cutest uh, Lina Polito, falls in love with Tunin and kind of convinces Salome that they can't sacrifice this, you know, very naive country boy for the cause that it's it, it's wrong that it's it's not worth it because then they're just as bad as the fascists it's very complicated it's so fun there's this musical sequence that I just think is better than even the greatest of Fellini sort of montages uh it it is there's a lot of anarchy there's also a lot of love and um that's maybe one of the stupidest things I've said on this podcast but I will oh stand behind it Alicia I'm with you it's so difficult to talk about her movies which is why I think a lot of people don't because they are so mm-hmm. complicated and so uh, uh, like on a certain offensive. level, un- they're offensive. Of- offensive and unpleasant, right? This is actually, yeah. we're going to be talking about um, Drop Dead Gorgeous later in the season. And I have very similar feelings about Drop Dead Gorgeous in that I am so offended by so much of this. And yet I am riveted and invested and delighted. And we all felt the same way about Seven Beauties, too, where it's like, this mm-hmm. is repellent and I cannot stop watching. It is grotesquerie at its highest form, but in the best possible way. And I think a lot of that comes down to the performance of Giancarlo Giannini, who is in all of these movies, who is so lovable. He is so freaking mm-hmm. lovable. Even when he's doing horrendous, reprehensible things, he almost has this Charlie Chaplin-esque little clown innocence to him that you're just like, I can't help but love you. I said the exact same thing, the Chaplin-esque. Um, there's a scene with him sitting in a chair where they have clearly, at least to my eyes, made his pant cuffs and his entire costume mimic a very famous image of Chaplin as the tramp. Like it is, it is, they must have had the photograph and then she just frames him. She, she shoots him straight on. Um, It's unbelievable. Like he is, he is the tramp. And I think that lovability and those slow to react and never, you know, he's, he does bubble over in the third act, but he's always just even in this like dinner scene with like 40 prostitutes calling each other sluts and whores and bitches. And I hope you get cancer and like just the like meanest, most vile things you can say to another human being. And that's just a dinner on a Monday night. <laughs> he is so stoic and so able to kind of roll with it because of his naivete and because he's lost his will to live, like he's just become part of the cause. And he's just until he falls in love, of course, with Tripolina. I don't think I've ever said that many swears on this podcast before. <laughs> We're going to lose listeners, Alicia. Thanks. Sorry, uh, Lacey, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the uh, the love story of uh, Tripolina and Tunin, it really, it really swept me up. You know, we're seeing this man, when he first enters into the brothel, he he's so awkward and so stone-faced and you can just feel the uncomfortableness like radiating from this man because he's he's never been in a brothel before obviously but he's never been around this many like half-naked women Mm -hmm. um and just to kind of watch him over the course of the movie um open up to these women and eventually fall in love that storyline really took me in and I 
I really hoped that love would would save the day Mm-mm. in this movie. Not which, possible. Oh, sweet, which is naive, so silly Lacey. <laughs> I know, I know. So silly. No, but I get, I get what you're saying. I felt the same thing, too, upon seeing this the first time, that maybe this would have, you know, not a happy ending, but a, a, an ending more in line with something like um, The Seduction of Mimi or um, Swept Away, where it's like, you know, still problematic but it's not as nihilistic as unfortunately this film's ending turned out to be Mm. um but how you know and how else could this film end like we have so many years of history behind us where we know what fascism did to this country we we know that world war ii is around the corner um we know what happens to even the film industry during this time that there's going to be this long period of not making film and then we get something like the neorealist era of which you know fellini was writing a lot of those films and then ends up training vert Mueller. like it's such a such a genealogy that I always have to wrap my brain around. I think Italian film to me is just so fascinating in its trajectory, going from the white telephone films of the 1930s, well, starting with the silent era, like an incredible uh, country for silent film, and then into the white telephone films and into the war and then into neorealism and then into the absurdity of Fellini and then into something in the 1970s like this. Lacey, are you familiar with uh, the fact that Lena Wertmuller hated the concept of feminism, that she did not believe herself to be a feminist? I I do know that from listening to uh, the Seven Beauties episode of the podcast, actually. Um, and that that is so interesting to me. Please, do you have any information well, on that? Well, I was just thinking, because it, it kind of came to light for me more. I rewatched Swept Away, because why wouldn't you rewatch Swept Away if you have a huge oh, crush on so Giancarlo good. Giannini? Um, so but, and watching this one made me want to re- rewatch that one. But it really made me look at I genuinely think she, more like more than any other filmmaker, and this is such a weird thing to say, doesn't see gender. Like, she's not really playing mm-hmm. with a lot of gender politics. She is genuinely just writing these are concepts. Like, people fall in love, et cetera, et cetera. They, they do things. They, they go against each other. But no one actually has a gender like in Swept Away. It's not about the male-female dynamic. It's about the power dynamic. And the same thing is kind of happening here about, like, duty and distraction. And, yes, there are women and men and they're sex workers. And there is the power dynamic between the Johns and the, and the sex worker. And who has more power? Is it Salome or is it her Johns? You you know, that's really interesting that, yeah, it's it's not about gender, but we we want to put it on there so bad. And she didn't she didn't want to be a, a known as a feminist because she didn't want to be called a women, a woman filmmaker. She just wanted to be a filmmaker, which is feminism. That is correct. But she I mean, that's, that's very avant garde now. Like that is what all women filmmakers are able to kind of, you know, it's how I think of contemporary women filmmakers when I'm teaching them is that, you know, we don't make that distinction anymore and we shouldn't be. Um, But she was 50 years ahead of her time in that. I do think, I still think she sees gender. I wouldn't say she's, yeah, I still think she sees gender. Where I kind of land is, I think she um, doesn't see the, 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 she doesn't see the distinction between a whore and a mother. Mm. And that's what makes this film so fascinating to me in the character of Salome. I mean, her name is Salome. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Her prostitution name is Salome. But she is, you know, she's both a whore, absolutely, like, that's her character. Um, But she's very motherly to tune in. She's very protective of the other girls when she's not calling them (laughs) bitches and very (laughs) things. But uh, she is very motherly. And I think that's true of Seven Beauties and Swept Away, um, Seduction of Mimi. There is just no distinction, stupid distinction that was still occurring in Italy in the 1970s between, you know, um, a whore and the Madonna. She just obliterates it and she does it better than anyone else. She obliterates it. She makes it funny. She makes fun of it. She subverts our expectations of these characters. And ultimately, she's just making us think about these sort of uh, social norms in a different way, which I think makes all of the kind of uh, grotesqueness that comes from some of her films, it, it ultimately makes it all very worth it in the end. Yeah, she gives Salome a backstory too, which I'd forgotten until watching it this most recent time, where, you know, she is a prostitute because she got, she was impregnated at 16 and the guy ran off. Um, and so that's interesting to get a backstory for you know, an understanding of how women in Italy in the 1920s, probably, if we're talking about her character, uh, ended up as prostitutes. 
because they would have been rejected by their families and had no other choice in order to feed themselves. But that's the point of Seven Beauties as well, right? Is that he is determined that none of his parents, none of his, his sisters are going to be sex workers and he's going to save them all. And he, of course, doesn't. Um, which is, is so- yeah, his mom becomes a sex worker. <laughs> his, his fiance becomes a sex worker. And like, you wouldn't have Seven Beauties, which is based on a real story. It was one of the extras from Swept Away who told her about this. And you wouldn't have Seven Beauties without Love and Anarchy. It really is sort of the predecessor, like the the DNA is there for a masterpiece like Seven Beauties. But you also get the reverse the reversal of roles in Swept Away, which is the very next year, because that's Mary Angela Mulatto as well and Giancarlo Giannini in, in the role reversal there where like he becomes the power structure in that one, whereas in this one, she's the power. She has the power. So it's interesting to see the two of them kind of reverse roles. And I'm sure people it's like back to back years. I'm sure people went into both of those movies with that expect like with the expectation of I'm going to see the same thing. And then they don't. They see the complete reverse and swept away. Two things on that. OK. One, if listeners love the film Overboard with Kurt Russell and Goldie <laughs> Hawn, do yourself a favor and watch the original, which is Swept Away. Don't watch the Madonna remake. Well, no, you, you can't. Too I'm just, late. Too late. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing is that I, I love, I always have to remind myself, is the way that these Burt Mueller's were released in the U.S. So Seven Beauties is 75. It gets released in New York in early 76. They decided to release all of Vert Mueller's films up until that point. So if you were on 42nd Street in New York, you could watch Swept Away, Seven Beauties, The Seduction of Mimi, and Love and Anarchy all in the same week. Like, I can't imagine... I mean, in some ways, that is how I just... I, I worked way, my way through Vert Mueller was, you know, watching Seven Beauties and then feeling like I need to watch everything immediately, um, just like voraciously falling in love with her films I love that theatrically that was how it was done in the mid-70s in the U.S. Well, that makes sense. That now makes sense to me why why she had so much celebrity yes. built around her. Yes. Um, I did not know she had that much kind of commotion yeah. around her. I really thought it was just the white glasses that people were going <laughs> insane for along with the these incredible films. They are but. so great. And, you know, I was so happy we had recorded an episode on her prior to her death um you know she died at 94 i believe it's a a good long life with incredible films but i did think to myself like where are the glasses like what museum like what oh please god tell me like the cineteca in rome has an eye eye line on those glasses because they need to be in a case like on display as a very important artifact in film history um I mean, maybe her family has them. That would be reasonable, I suppose. But uh, I really don't. <laughs> but they belong to the people. That is a very nationalist. Well, it's like a, it's a memento mori of like a very important pioneering filmmaker who changed how the films of her own country were viewed and then also changed how we view women directors. And I just think the glasses, they remind me of 60s and 70s glasses, but they're, they're just, they're totally her. And I, I hope they're somewhere safe. Or she maybe they buried her with them. That's also possible. <laughs> I don't think. I think we should end. Let's end this conversation. Okay. Right now. Okay. Uh, so I'm kind of new to Giancarlo Giannini, mm-hmm. um, and I've just I've never seen an actor utilize their eyes so well. I've never seen acting where I was like, those eyes are speaking to me right now. They are pulling off something that I can't even put words to. Yeah. I. I would love to know his acting background. And I know he was sort of like a muse um, for Lena, which I find fascinating. But I just think his acting style is, it's its so perfect for her direction. Yeah. I, I wish they'd made a million movies together. Their relationship goes back to the 60s in theater, um, where I believe she worked on mm-hmm. a, a theater production that he was in. Um, and so they they kind of partnered up really early on in both of their careers. And I don't know a lot. I think maybe Becky would know a lot more about Giannini, but I can tell you as a silent film programmer, it's not just Chaplin that he's looking at. I see Max Linder, who was Mm. like the French version, the predecessor to Charlie Chaplin in France and who inspired the tramp. Um, I see, you know, a variety of also Italian silent film comedians that we don't talk about because we're very just focused on Keaton, Harold Lloyd and Chaplin. 
I think that little like he also does this little thing with his mustache in some films that is very, um, very, very tramp, very Charlie Chaplin. Like he, in my perspective, is specifically looking at silent film of the 20s and slapstick. And that's just slapstick, the masterpieces of comedy of the 1920s. Well, he's got. okay. so this is one of those things where you're like, seriously, is he actually started out with a degree in electronics? So, so that's where he started. And then he, at like 18, 19, he was like, you know what? I want to be an actor. And then he got a Shakespearean education. So he was in Romeo and Juliet. He was doing um, Midsummer Night's Dream, um, things like that in the early in the 60s before he met. Like, I think that's around the time he was meeting, working with uh, Lena in the theater. And you can see a lot of that theatrical, especially Shakespearean training translated into his film work because a lot of it he doesn't talk everything is just um express like especially with like midsummer night's dreamy kind of stuff it's just the expression of of his body and his eyes and especially the eyebrows the mustache there's a, a intricacy to his performances that would have been fed by shakespeare he was known for dubbing international american stars so he was the dubber for jack nicholson al pacino michael douglas dustin hoffman gerard depardieu and ian mckellen whenever any of those actors appeared on screen in an italian or in an american film dubbed in Italy, he was the voice of them, which is, you know, a pretty good little uh, a little side gig. I hope he got a good paycheck from that. I hope he lives in an exquisite mansion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's Italy. I'm sure he has some sort of like gorgeous villa. All right. At that note, we are going to end this episode. I want to thank Lacey so much for being with us. Lacey, how do people see your work? Because you do something kind of fun for Hollywood Suite. Yes, uh, I am on TikTok via our Hollywood Suite account, trying to get some good little tidbits of movie information out to the Gen Z masses. Um, please follow and us dogs. there. Please like and comment. Oh, yes. And dogs, obviously. So please come for the Hollywood dogs, suite. the movie information. Yeah, yeah you, did, you did good things for my ginger. Thank you. You made her look great. So I really appreciated that. You're so welcome. <laughs> and Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I have one more fact about Giancarlo Giannini. I had written it down a year ago when we did Seven Beauties, and then I doubted myself because I thought there's no way that's true. He invented all the little tinkery toys for the Robin Williams film Toys. What? Okay. So you what? know how he said he was like his background's electronics? He that built, would be it. Um, and designed a lot of those like insane toys that both um, Joan... Uh, John Cusack and uh, Robin Williams like play with. Wild. Wild. Okay, that makes me very happy. All right, and you can join us next time as we look at the early career of Pam Greer. 1973 is a very good year for her. We've got the movies Black Mama, White Mama and Scream, Blackula Scream. And we're going to be joined by the always fantastic Carolyn Morissette. That's coming up next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Alicia Fletcher and Lacey Novinka as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>